Warning. This is the most important podcast of our lifetime. Hello, everyone. <laughs> what is Hapatarian? So what is, what is Hapa? So when you put together Hapatarians, what, what is that? You know the thing. They're here to, <laughs> they're here to awkward it up for you guys. Which is a very interesting and beautiful mix of humanity. Anyone has a podcast. You're an extremist. Shut up. All right, let's, let's get to it. Hey, what's happening? And welcome to the Hopitarian Show, the number one podcast that gives you a huge dopamine hit and then drops off as the episode goes along. Please don't forget to subscribe, leave a five star rating, and in the comments, tell us how much you love the Hop Ethnostate. Our guest today is a lawyer, a Childerberg attendee, alumni, loves metal music, and I have it on good authority that he is a distant cousin to Seth and Todd McFarlane. It's the host of Vital Descent, Patrick McFarlane. How are you doing, sir? Hey, hey, thanks for having me on again. Yeah, no problem. It's It's been uh, too long, as they say. Yeah, and, and about that dopamine rush, I'm all about that dopamine, man. I, I just started a thing where I'm trying to like get dopamine from healthy sources, you know? Yeah. It's always a struggle. It's like, oh, I should be getting dopamine from my life? What? <laughs> what is that shit? Yeah, instead you're you're on Twitter. To, oh, notification! Ooh, what's what's going on there? <laughs> yeah, so I had to. I took it off my phone, and then so now I'm just out of the loop on everything. But it's fine. But I just don't get to see all the fun that people are having at Childerberg right now. Right. Yeah, I was just gonna mention that uh, Memorial Day weekend that we're recording this, and Childerberg is gonna be happening during that time. And uh, like I said in the intro, you've been there. I've I've been to the first one. Uh, how many times have you been there? Twice, yeah. I went uh, last year and the year before. So I know from the first one to now, that's it's on its fifth iteration. I'm when I'm wearing a shirt in, in solidarity. Uh, it seems to just grow and, and grow, which is incredible. From the first one, which I don't know if I'm being too liberal, conservative on the number, but I think there was maybe 50 people. At the first one, I, again, I could be, I could be wrong. I don't remember hundred percent, but now I'm sure there's probably hundreds of people. I mean, they have uh, like a, a comedy show and, and music and everything like that. It, it's crazy how, just how much it's grown and who knows number 10 could be freaking even more massive to where there's yeah. like thousands of people there. Um, so that's just really cool that, to see that. And I know it's a lot of hard work. I know Jacob, who's one of the guys behind it. He, he worked really hard on it. And so this is pretty much just, I guess, uh, like an advertisement for the show. Whenever you're able to go there, it's in, uh, it's usually in around Austin, Texas. And it's, it's usually around the same time. So around like in May, June ish, somewhere in there, I guess it depends whenever they're able to do it, but it's generally in the summer. Um, so like for you, how was your experience going to Childerberg and, and, and all that good stuff there? Oh, yeah, it was great. I mean, and I, I think the best part about it is that you get to, like, meet people in person, which is very important to do because it helps you to realize that, like, Twitter's not real and that the interactions that you have in real life are real. And so even if, you know, there's someone that you don't get along with on Twitter or something like that, you meet in person and usually everything's fine because you're real people. And, you know, when you argue on Twitter, it's just it's a manufactured application that encourages people to be nasty to each other. So, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, just to see who can out-nasty each other, basically, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you're right with the face-to-face interaction. Like, it's, it's, I'm sure it'd be weird when you see someone who's like, oh, I've been in so many trade arguments with that guy. I want to yeah. beat the shit out of me. You see him go, oh, hey, what's going on? You hang out, whatever. Yeah, no, it, it really is special. I mean, you you see a bunch of people, and then you you get your tribe, and then you come back every year and see these same people. And, um, yeah, it's just – it's great. So uh, to, to, to create a screeching halt to this conversation and kind of go uh, in a completely different area – uh, so you, you work for the Libertarian Institute and you have a show, like I said, an in intro called Vital Descent. And one of the recent episodes that you had talked about was anti-war films and kind of just, uh, I guess, how anti-war they really are, if there is even such a thing as that. Uh, so can you kind of go with an overview on what that whole episode was about? Yeah. And before I get started, I, I should note that... Um... Memorial Day is the anniversary of when I started doing my first show, Liberty Weekly. Um, mm. I, I started the website, Liberty Weekly, a year before I started the podcast. So it would be seven years, year anniversary that I did the website, and then six years for the podcast. So I always try to remember that on Memorial Day because I forget about it. So um, just like to try and take time to reflect my personally and be like, okay, <laughs> It's been that long. That's crazy. But um, yeah, it's pretty long. The um, the episode, I I don't know exactly how I came across this. I think that I was really surprised by the reaction that it got because, um, you know, it's it's not incredibly often that I have five or six people reach out to me and be like, yeah, that topic is really interesting, and um, I want to talk to you about it. Um, just you know, as as an aside. Um, have a conversation and expand upon it and I think that it would be fun for the show for my show to do it once in a while just with individual works of you know individual anti-war works and maybe that'll be in in store but essentially the idea is that it's impossible to create an anti-war film because no matter how you do it how you set it up and how you tell the anti-war story it will end up glorifying war in some way. Just the spectacle of it is in a sense like pornography um, for, especially for young men showing action sequences on film or showing warfare itself where someone is, you know, there's ultra violence taking place and gore. Uh, but, you know, even if there's no heroics to it, it's the machismo of it in a sense. Like uh, if, like Full Metal Jacket is supposed to be an anti-war film. But what do people remember about that movie? They don't remember the second half of the movie where there's all of the philosophical you know, introspection uh, that Joker goes through. And then the military sequence at the end where they're going through this destroyed manufacturing area somewhere in Vietnam. And they get into a firefight with like a sniper. They go on a sniper hunt and the sniper kills a bunch of guys and they finally track the sniper down and kill the sniper and they realize that it's a woman and it just really messes with them and there's a message to it but no what people remember from that movie is the beginning where um you know gunny i forget his name gunny do you remember his name the famous uh sergeant hartman no the um the the drill sergeant from the beginning is it hartman in the movie yeah yeah what what is the actor played by arlie ermy yeah, Arlie Ermey, yeah. 
but people remember that. And then there's a quote, I think, in the episode where Arlie Ermey is talking about whenever he goes on base or does things with the military, he has so many Marines come up to him and say, you're the reason why I'm in the Marine Corps and why I joined mm. because I saw you in Full Metal Jacket, which is an anti-war movie, right? So how does that compute? Yeah, that is kind of weird. Um, and you know, I'm guilty of this. Like that whole first part of the movie, I mean, it's it's mesmerizing. You're glued to what he's doing and what he's saying and just how, I mean, the beginning, the very beginning of the movie is everyone just getting their head shaved and, you know, they're all like, oh, yeah, oh, my God, it was so cool. And then literally it's just like basically being fed to the wolves or whatever. And, you know, that's that's his uh, uh, Arlie Ermey. That's that's the thing that he's pretty much known for is that movie and that role. And I, and I, I believe some of the behind the scenes was he wasn't even originally going to be that guy. I think it was just going to be like a consultant or something like that. And then one thing led to another to where he was the guy that ended up playing that role. And of course, you know, the rest is history, as they say. And I mean, I guess just kind of judging off of Full Metal Jacket, it's that, like me personally, I love Stanley Kubrick movies. So that's one of the ones where, like, yeah, like you were saying, a lot of people know about the first part, but the second part I feel probably has probably more of the message, I guess, because they're already, they're already been through probably maybe not like obviously. Cause you're not actually, they're not like when you're in basic training, you're not actually being shot at. You're not actually like possibly going to get killed or whatever. But when you're at, actually in the war, of course, every day could be your last so when you're out there uh, for that second part, seeing how he's taken what he's learned, I guess you could say, in basic training and trying to use that. to I mean, even then, he, like you were saying, when he finds out that, that the sniper's a woman, he's like, uh, you know, I don't know if I want to do this. And But she keeps telling her to you know, shoot me. And then he right. ends up doing it. And then they start singing M-I-C-K-Y-M-O-U-S-E. Like, oh, you know, I'll be jolly, you know. Yeah. But but the whole thing is supposed to be this sim- it's supposed to be symbolism that he went from being this guy who just wanted to go in and take pictures to being a killing machine that that's kind of the whole message of that but like you were saying it does glorify and people are in the military because of the drill sergeant and they see oh man i want to be that guy that gets to go around and shooting and not really understanding the whole psychological aspect of actually being in a war not like not like we've ever been in a war before but just knowing that if we're in a war it's terrifying it's horrible we don't want to be in ever in that situation it's 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 nightmarish yeah, and I think the the one thing that Joker touches on, r- like right after you go uh, from the first part to the second part, so uh, Private Pyle has killed Arlie Ermey in the bathroom. Right. Spoiler alert! And in like there there is an anti war aspect to that because there's the whole idea that in boot camp what they do is they take you and they break you down and they build you back up, and for a lot of people that really messes with their brain mm-hmm. uh, because you're you're deconstructed and in a way disassociated and scattered shattered and then they put you back together in their mold um so it's like melting you down and injection molding you in what uncle sam wants and for some people that just breaks them like private pile and so when it switches to the second half joe joker is talking about um there there's the um 
whatever officer comes up to him and berates him for having like a peace symbol on his helmet mm -hmm. and born to kill on the one side. And he says he, he makes a philosophical point to this officer, like something about, oh, you know, the duality of man, that Jung thing, which is really, if you go into it, Jung talks about how um, inside each and every one of us and in, in uh, Jordan Peterson talks about this too is that there is the capacity for great good, but also the capacity for great evil. Hmm. And that capacity for evil exists in all of us. And for a lot of veterans, when they come back, they have something called moral injury that I've talked about before. Hmm. Uh, that kind of goes hand in hand with PTSD, uh, but it's not, it's not um, quite the same as PTSD, but it's really like this moral disconnect that they have. And it's because they've unleashed the inner monster and um, they can't reconcile their previous self, their true self, which is, you know, a good human being with that capacity for evil that they've seen exist in their lives. And like you were talking about before, at the end of the movie, Joker realizes that he has that duality of man in him. And how do you come back from that, really? Yeah, it's kind of like, um, I guess, like a final stage. Because like you're saying, once you kind of get to that point where, uh, like, he, I don't know how old that sniper was, but probably 12, 13. Like, you're pretty much murdering yeah. a girl. Now, I mean, to be fair, you know, you're being shot out. So you're kind of, you know, defending yourself and having to, because you're in a war. Like, pretty much yeah. all that's thrown out the window. So murder, whatever. You, you have to do what you got to do to survive. But even that aspect of, oh, I just killed a kid. Like, that's that's crazy. And, yeah, when a lot of veterans come back from whether it was any war, really Vietnam to uh, like Afghanistan or, or wherever it was, especially if you did have to kill someone or you've seen someone die or ha have were killed already, that messes you up. I mean, seeing a dead body isn't going to be something you're going to ever forget. Like, you just go, oh, yeah, dead body, whatever. Okay. Unless you're completely desensitized to it, I guess. Like, you're just completely out of there. But for the most part, you're pretty much like, that's it. Yeah. And it's really difficult to talk about being people who aren't in the military and who didn't experience it or go to war because it's, it's like one of those things, like, we were talking about before we went on air about being a parent, like mm -hmm. unless you've been a parent, you don't understand what it's like Yeah. And unless you have, it's like virgins talking about sex too. It's like, well, unless you've actually had sex, you don't really know what it's like and you can't really <laughs> describe it. Right. Um, you can describe, you know, an idea of it. And that's what war is. War films are, their fatal flaw, right? Is and that's why the comparison to pornography is so. Um, I think it works so well, and it really captures what it is. Because if you're a virgin watching hardcore pornography, you're you're kind of getting an idea of what sex is like, but you're not at all. Right. <laughs> you're getting you know this created stage show version, and and in the same way when you watch a war film you're kind of getting an idea of what it's like, but you're not at all. I mean, there's things that are very completely different about it that are, you know, in film it's staged and it's acting and it's, um, you know, a lot of, and, and what I talked about in the episode too, in this, this um, essay that I reviewed was saying that, I mean, essentially 
films in some ways actually exaggerate the violence in mm. in some ways like they were saying that in saving private ryan you see all of the gore that would have really happened at normandy compressed into you know uh, an eight minute an eight minute segment over you know and i'm sure there's a lot more things that happened but uh the idea is is the same is that it's a manufactured artificial war experience and it, it kind of ties into the thing that we're currently living in with all the things that are going on with Russia and Ukraine and then the escalations with China and Taiwan and and even the the, the ongoing Korean tension with North right. and South. And I mean, it's, I don't know. I, I, I mean, kind of, I guess as a little bit of a joke, I suppose it was, I think it was on Twitter or Instagram where I saw something along the lines of, Russian actors realizing that they have job security for the next 30 years because, Oh, we're going to be movie villains again. Still. Yes. Like <laughs> we, we got, you know, we're, we still got work. Um, so I guess in that aspect, I guess it's fine. And Hollywood's probably foam at the mouth. Like, Oh man, I can't wait to, to make these Russian uh, people be bad and, and the Ukrainians be good. And again, I don't even know, like whoever your line is in this whole war, like if you're, whoever side you're on, I think it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day is war and people are going to die and it sucks. And I don't know. So I guess as a little bit of an aside with that, talking about like war in general, and I guess libertarian philosophy, when, when we're looking at, we're looking at this Russia, Ukraine conflict going on and, I know there's a lot of history to it. I know that there's a lot of why the Russians and, and Vladimir Putin, especially the like why they decided to do what they did. I think that's great. I think not, not the action, but I'm saying it's great that the, this history is, is known, but I still think the fact that they ended up doing the invasion in the first place is still bad and that's what I'm, I'm sure you, i don't know if you see it on twitter but there's libertarians are like yeah i'm 100 percent on ukraine so i don't give a fuck what the history is i don't care if russia felt like they were tied to a corner and they felt their backs were against the wall and they had to do what they had to do i don't give a shit and i'm kind of thinking i mean i i i can understand where they're coming from because at the end of the day they were the aggressors and aren't libertarians supposed to be non-aggression so I guess my question to you is how come there are some libertarians who feel the way and other libertarians kind of just look, they just look at the, the background of why it happened. Well, I think it really boils down to, uh, there was an episode that I did on my show with Lori Calhoun, who's a senior fellow at the Institute. Um, and she has specialized in kind of the philosophical underpinnings of, conflict theory and and mm -hmm. one one of her books that we talked about is really attacks this idea that there is any such thing as a just war because if if you go through and there's all this esoteric writing that's completely inaccessible to the average person um about just war theory and all of the neocons and you know people in power they go to their Ivy League schools and they talk about the, the morality of war and the philosophical underpinnings of it. And she really makes the point 
and she makes a convincing case that there is no such thing as a just war, period, full stop. Because every single leader who comes in is going to say and make arguments and might make convincing arguments as to why their side is completely justified, whether it's given history or given uh, the context or who struck first or things like that. And I think there's there's like different tiers of it when you're when you're coming at it from our perspective. On the one level, it's like, okay, as a libertarian, yes, we're gonna get into the nitty-gritty of you know who or try to get into the nitty-gritty of who was justified in attacking, who is the aggressor in this situation. But I think the one thing missing from that calculation from a lot of the people who are talking about this is the aspect of, well, you're giving collective guilt to a collective of people. And there's no way really to get down and parse down to the individual level because libertarians, we don't necessarily deal in this idea of, oh, well, the Russians are justified because X, Y, Z, or the Ukrainians are justified because X, Y, Z happened. Uh, no, we get into this individual pulled the trigger and the bullet went across the other side and he meant to hit the Russian, but he hit a civilian, you know, and is that aggression? And then, you know, largely, I guess you look into our, why is that person there in the war to begin with? And the morality of the side that he's fighting for is relevant. Um, but that's where Lori says that essentially this doesn't make sense. None of it makes sense when you're trying to say a war is just because the reality of every single war, you know, wars aren't fought in a vacuum anymore. It's not like the Middle Ages where all the combatants in a war went out in a field and everyone who was there was there to fight the war and none of them were civilians. You know, once the era of total war started in, in earnest, uh, because it's not like, you know, civilians never died throughout history, but once that era started in earnest, Civilians will die. Non-combatants will die. The property of people not involved in the war are go is going to be violated. Their property rights are going to. So therefore, no side is just because each side is going to be killing civilians and doing property damage. So it's a really long and complicated topic. Uh, but, you know, anywhere to go from there, you know? Well, does it kind of i mean i guess it's probably a, a stupid thing to kind of add to that but does it kind of frustrate you that there are people who call themselves libertarian or, or or even conservative or whatever where they just they don't even understand that there's people who wouldn't even they're like yeah we should be supporting ukraine because they're the ones that are being aggressed upon and I'm not trying to say that this is my opinion on it. I'm just trying to kind of get a better understanding because I think with the way, with the world that we live in and kind of just, I mean, of course, like we don't want the state to be around, but it's here. Right. America has allies outside of its borders where it, whether it's in Europe or Asia or wherever, and they feel that, Oh, uh, our friend over there in, in such and such countries being attacked by this other country that isn't our ally. So they feel obligated to do that. 
I don't know if that sounds neoconish. Maybe it does. I don't know. But yeah, it, I, th- I think, um, does it bother me? I don't know because it's like, you know, so many people have their opinions and do they really matter? And does anyone's opinion really matter? I guess right. how big your platform is and what you're doing. Um, but that's, that's why I, you know, I was mentioning the different tiers that you can look at this thing, the different layers of it, because you could have that completely neck beard Rothbardian, you know, look <laughs> at it and say, you know, try to really parse down who's doing what. I mean, um, and I wouldn't say, you know, that analyzing it from a just war theory perspective and saying this war is wrong and, and there's no good side. Yes, that certainly is helpful. And I think it's worthwhile to do that. But at the same time, we exist in the real world where the war is going to happen no matter how we condemn it, morally speaking. And mm-hmm. I will continue to condemn all of it. Um, but at the same time, I think you have to be realistic and realize what is the role that the United States has played. And as a citizen of the United States, what is my country doing to exacerbate the situation and to prolong it? And if you look at if you look at the actual history and the background, um, it becomes very clear that this war was provoked. The Russian invasion was provoked. And of course, that doesn't mean that it's morally justified or that it's something we should support. But we also have to realize that we exist in the world where nation states do exist and they have legitimate security concerns. And Russia's concerns in keeping Ukraine uh, neutral were concerns that were very well broadcast uh, throughout the years that were very well understood by the State Department. Uh, we have, you know, we have memos going back and forth uh, talking about how this is a red line for Russia and doing what we're doing is going to provoke a military a military response. And throughout the decades, you you just have provocation after provocation after provocation until finally Russia does something about it. Um, in an area that is in their legitimate security interests. And I just think that we ignore that at our own peril. And that's why people saying that we need to become even more involved, saying that, you know, and, and they talk about doing this with Taiwan, is that, well, we need to keep shipping them weapons and doing all these things to support them because uh, we learned our lesson with Ukraine and we didn't support them enough to deter Putin from invading. Meanwhile, they don't think that their actions are actually provocations. So, and a lot of people, and I've even said this before, have said, well, Putin had other options. He didn't have to invade. He shouldn't have done that. Um, But I could understand why he did and why he felt like he had to do. But when people say that, they don't explain what those other options were. (laughs) And, And they don't present any kind of realistic, you know, he tried so many different things and um so it's just a difficult thing (laughs) well i also feel that kind of staying on this where they'll take everything that putin says and just completely throw it out the window but then anything that our government will say is concerning this issue the ukraine russia conflict 
it's like, oh yeah, we yeah, you're totally right. We should be sending billions of dollars to Ukraine, all these fighter jets over all this weapons, whatever. I mean, that's basically the that's the definition of a proxy war. And it was, oh, we're not actually involved. It's like, well, yeah, you are. You're giving them all this money and all this equipment and everything like that. So yeah, you're involved in a proxy war. That's that's what the whole point of a proxy war is. You're, you're not actually on the ground per se, but you're actually oh yeah, here, here's us, here's some weapons there. I'll help you fight. It's not like America is also giving russia weapons and because if that was the case i don't know what the fuck like oh we're gonna give ukraine and russia some stuff all right cool they there you go now okay now you fight amongst yourselves and then we'll we'll see what happens and there you go yeah well and it also i mean for those people who think you know those for those people who support ukraine right and think that the united states should be actively supporting ukraine with more money and more weapons what why what is your end goal do you what do you care about do you care about ukrainian lives do you care about ukrainian sovereignty do you care about ukrainian territorial integrity do you care about um you know a lasting peaceful solution to this conflict which is going to exist and what do you think that what does victory look like to you does victory look like expelling russia back to their 2014 borders what what is it and if you think about all those objectives, do you care about Ukrainian sovereignty? Okay, do you care about it to the point where you're willing to sacrifice a million Ukrainians? And, mm -hmm. and in doing so, realizing that it's that the United States has actively and knowingly and intentionally prolonged the conflict, and we have evidence to confirm this, that a month after the Russian invasion, there was a tentative peace deal. The terms of the peace deal were worked out. Uh, I believe they were worked out in Turkey, I think. But Boris Johnson, then the prime minister of the UK, went and disrupted this deal and said to Zelensky, okay, well, Ukraine might be willing to end this conflict, but the West is not. Hmm. And there was a piece in, I think, the Washington Post or the New York Times that said, you know, we've come to this uncomfortable point where for some in NATO, it is better for Ukraine to keep fighting and dying than to reach a settlement to the conflict that comes at too great of a political cost, essentially was the quote. And so for over a year, we've been prolonging this conflict. And the goal is regime change in Russia. That's what the goal is of the U.S. State Department is to overthrow Vladimir Putin and to install some kind of government that is more friendly and docile to the West, that goes along with the, West, the West's agenda. And I, I think what they don't keep in mind, because you'll see you know, all these, the people, mostly liberals, um, they'll agree, oh, Putin's so terrible, you know, he should be out of power. Well, who's gonna replace Putin? And the fact is, is that Putin is not even the most hardline in his own government. There are mm -hmm. other political forces in Russia who think that Putin is too moderate. So who are you going to get? Are you going to get someone who is a puppet of the West? Or are you going to get someone who is really a Hitler? You know, so, yeah. Yeah, that, that's the, the age-old question, right? Like, who is like, like, oh, if Putin's so bad, just wait till you see who's next, right? that kind of thing. And I, I think that um, kind of, I guess, kind of tying back to 
what we were talking about before with the whole anti-war films and everything. I feel like if a movie or movies were made about this, I don't think, especially maybe like the early times, maybe once we kind of step back and we kind of realize, oh, it wasn't such a black and white type of thing. There was a lot more ambiguity and a kind of a gray area type of thing about this whole thing where you see like, um, uh, what's his, like Chris Kyle. I can't remember the movie now. American sniper. Yeah. Like, you know, the nine 11, uh, Afghanistan war and everything. I'm sure at the beginning, Oh yeah, we should totally go out and invade and do all this stuff. Cause they took our towers down and blah, 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 we got to do all this stuff. Now we look back on it and go, Oh, Oh, whoops. Probably shouldn't have done that. And maybe with this at, at like the first five years or so, when, when they start making movies, they're going to be like, Putin's the bad guy. Zelensky's the good guy. And here we go. All right. Everybody start fighting. And clearly Putin's going to be the one that's going to die. And Zelensky's going to be on triumphant. And yes, we, the good guys win. All right. And then maybe another five, 10 years later down they go, Oh wait, maybe we should start getting, the Russian side and kind of understanding why they did this. And then the Ukrainians being like, Oh, we're kind of stuck in this rock and a hard place where the West wants us to continue. We kind of want to be kind of wanted to stop this, but we're kind of prolonging. And I kind of like some of this publicity and everyone's calling me a hero. This is kind of nice. I don't want to stop this. You know, I feel kind of cool. And I don't know. I mean, I think it's definitely a lot more, Great, like I was saying, then what we're trying to be, what they're presenting us. And it's also interesting, too, that libertarians, especially, where they say, I don't trust what the government tells me. But then when it comes to certain things like this, they're kind of like, Yeah, I'll take your word for it. Yeah, yeah, everything is going out there. How do you know? You're not out to go out there and f- check it out then or tr- find some footage or whatever of all this stuff that's no- happening. <laughs> Or there's no Nazis in Ukraine, right? Yeah. The U.S. government tells me there's no Nazis in Ukraine, so I'll take their word for it, right? And and like I I think, like you're talking about, I think one of the problems with with libertarianism or or libertarians rather at times is that, and and maybe it's because Murray Rothbard in his application of the non-aggression principle is so black and white. Like either someone is aggressing or they're not. And there's no, unless I'm, unless this is my ignorance of Murray Rothbard, but from my experience reading it and my pattern of thinking when I was a younger libertarian, thinking that, okay, it's either aggression or it's not. Um, Or there's either one side who's more aggressive and therefore, you know, that kind of thing. But it really is these kind of shades of gray when you come into it. And, um, you know, with the whole Ukrainian Nazis thing, like, yeah, there, there's a huge Nazi element in Ukraine. Is the entire government being run by Nazis? No, I don't think so, at least from what I can tell. But is there a huge Nazi influence in politics in Ukraine? Yes. And like, they can't show a single picture of a Ukrainian soldier with US NATO equipment who doesn't have some kind of a neo-Nazi patch or neo-Nazi tattoos or something like that. I mean, there was just an attack on Belgorod uh, by U- Ukrainian neo-Nazis uh, with with uh, with NATO MRAPs, you know, with NATO armored vehicles and stuff. I mean, this stuff does exist, and the mainstream media realized and was openly writing about Ukrainian Nazis and the problem with Nazis in Ukrainian politics 
before 2014, before the coup that was led in part by Nazis, um, the violent element of it that really progressed the coup um, was led by Nazis. And so, yeah, it, but that doesn't mean that, you know, Putin says that the, the campaign to take Ukraine is to get rid of all the Nazis, denazify it. Um, mm. Does that mean that that is a, that narrative from Putin is a hundred percent true? No, you know, so it, it, it is difficult. And, and kind of getting back to like aggression, like you're talking with Murray Rothbard and how at least in, in, from your interpretation and kind of, I guess, however people want to read it, it is kind of more of a black and white type of thing, but also not just reading it from a book, but everybody's going to have their own definition of what aggression looks like and what it is and what it isn't. I mean, you go to, you go to court and you go, yeah, well, I was defending myself. Someone goes, no, but you killed somebody. So even though you were, because yeah. everyone's going to have their own definition on what you did and what you were doing and whether you uh, acted in self-defense, because even when I'm looking at something where I look at a case or I'm seeing it on, like I'm reading about it and I go, yeah, that was clearly. So you give it to someone else to go, no, that guy clearly deserves to go to jail for, life or you know whatever it's like so how are you how are you even gonna be able to define all this stuff because even if you have definition of it things change all the time and, and it's you're, you're exactly right and i'm so glad that you brought this up because this goes to you know as a lawyer there's the myth of the rule of law which is the john hasness uh, article a law review article he wrote in uh i think it was the university of wisconsin law review um, basically where he says there is no such thing as an objective law because you have two different sides argue convincingly and they're both right. And at the end of the day, if it's an appeal, the judge, the, the judges will issue an opinion and it's called an opinion because it's, it's not an objective thing. And when you say, especially when you say, oh, you're going to have different people having different definitions of what aggression is, right? Well, you can... You can give them a definition of what aggression is, but then you feed them a different factual scenario. And that's what we do all the time with the jury in a criminal case. Like, look at the Kyle Rittenhouse case. You get a jury, you give them the definition of what aggression is, and then you give them a whole bunch of facts about what happened in the world. And they need to use their own common sense and their own deduction powers and decide, apply these facts to the law and figure out what they think if it fits or not and not every 12 jurors are going to come up with the same answer same yeah, you just, yeah yeah you just mentioned like common sense like your common sense could be different from my common sense to my neighbor's common sense to whoever like everybody's common sense is different so how do I, you know, okay yeah. so what i want you to do 12 jurors is you do this and and you do that and then i want all of you to agree on everything and then they're like, but my definition of whatever we're looking at is different from this person, or I don't know. Like how, so how are you supposed to rely on like, it, yeah, it, it's, I don't know. It's a, it's like, it, it's an, it, I don't even know how to put into words. Cause it's so it's, it's awkward really because yeah. you're thinking, okay, so we're living in this world, living in the real world. It, it's great. Like we live in America. It's great, but it definitely has its flaws. And I think that, no objective uh like no objective rule uh, rule of law like even just hearing that you're just thinking okay so how am i supposed to yeah like what am i supposed to do with that well, you and, know and, and i think it's 
it's not an issue of well our country's imperfect i think it's an issue of there is no and can never ever be such thing as an objective rule of law um and and even if we lived in a perfect system there still would be no objective law because it just it's an impossibility because the the factors of what could happen in the world are infinite Hmm. And there's no way to figure that out. And the problems and the wrinkles in the law are infinite. And that's why I, I mean, I, I guess I'll argue on behalf, <clears throat> on behalf of, of the system we have, uh, because it, it's the, it's the best way that we know of that you can get justice that is localized. And, and I think in a libertarian sense, we're talking about decentralization <laughs> and different standards and it's okay to have different standards for different areas that's what decentralization is well lysander spooner when he wrote trial by jury in the 1800s was talking about the magna carta so we're really going deep here but he was talking about the magna carta and talking about this idea of a trial by your peers because that's what's guaranteed in the constitution which looks back at the magna carta and says now listen what we're going to do is we're not going to have the state who comes in and decides, you know, who's innocent and who's guilty given a certain amount of facts. We're going to bring in 12 motherfuckers that, that live right next to this person. And we're going to have them decide, we're going to have them listen to what happened and have them make up their own minds about what justice means in this community, given this community's values and um and in the culture in this community and um that's why you know in if you had a jury trial for the kyle rittenhouse case in new york city or in i don't know the most liberal area of california you'd probably get a different result but that's how the people in that place want it done and is it a perfect system no but there is no such thing <laughs> Yeah, that's true. And, and I'm sure in, in Kyle's case, I'm sure he was glad wherever it was done. He's like, oh, yeah, thank you, Lord. Because if yeah, like you were saying, if it was done in like the biggest liberal town ever, it'd be like, you're going to jail for life, buddy. Like, yeah. see you later. Have a nice life. If you know? it was Milwaukee County, it might be different. But no, it was Kenosha County. Yeah. 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 It, it definitely makes a big difference. And knowing that each state has its own laws and kind of does things their own way. But then you have the federal government that is supposed to oversee all that. And of course, you know, we see how that's not always the case. And I, I mean, like just kind of going back to all the anti-war films and, and everything like that. I think it is kind of a good, it, it's good. It's a good thing to, to, watch these kinds of movies because even if people like they see it and they, they look at all the glorification, everyone's going to be interpreting it differently. So it's kind of like how, like with like law or anything, everyone's going to be interpreting it differently. So, and just kind of being a movie buff myself, just thinking about, Oh yeah, full metal jacket is great. And, and apocalypse apocalypse. Now is probably, in a, a, probably, I don't know if it's a better example, but it's definitely another great example of how, these people are on a boat in Vietnam and there's these, I think it's like five major characters in, in this boat and one by one, they, they, they kind of get taken off and, and, but the whole, but then you think, but the whole 
reason that he's out there is to get this guy and, and basically like kill him. That's the whole point of the movie. Yeah. It's, so, it's so crazy. Uh, you know, believe it or not, I haven't, <clears throat> I've, tr- I haven't watched Apocalypse Now, and I haven't watched Platoon either, and I really need to watch them really bad. I'm familiar with the plots mm-hmm. um, of both movies, but, um, yeah, in it, Apocalypse Now is the one where the guy goes nuts and he takes over like an indigenous colony and like becomes the dictator, right, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, uh, Ball and Brando's character, yeah. And so so their job is to go out and, like, get him, right? And, yeah. And, and bring him back or something like that? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. But, I don't know, I just... One, one of the big movies that was talked about in this paper was Saving Private Ryan, because I yeah. don't know if you could think of any American war film that is bigger than that. I mean, maybe Top Gun, or maybe Sands of Iwo Jima, or something like that. Yeah. Um, but Saving Private Ryan for our generation, I mean, I was, it came out in 99. I was seven years old when it came out. And I remember my parents seeing it in theaters and it was like, um, they came back and said, oh, you'd be so interested in this and maybe hmm. you shouldn't watch it yet. But it, it was, it came at exactly the time when all of the World War II vets were in their like 70s, 70s, I think like 70s and 80s. And I mean, it just, in a way, it just kind of set the stage for kicking Vietnam syndrome and starting the global war on terror, Hmm. ushering in, you know, this veneration of America's the force for good in the world. This is our unipolar moment where we're the only superpower. Now we need to go out there and, you know, secure democracy for the world. It, and that was the message of the film. I mean, if you think about it, like it seems like it would be an anti-war film, but if you think about it, it's, you know, the U S government has a sense of fairness. They care about humanity and human stories. Our soldiers yeah. are heroic and they're stoic and they take it upon themselves to do the right thing and to get this guy home where he becomes, you know, a beloved grandfather who who appreciates the sacrifice that everyone made for him. And um, we did this all because Nazis are bad and everyone knows Hitler is the ultimate evil. And now every evil person who comes into the world is Hitler, you know, and we're, we're justified in expanding our empire, you know, across the globe. Well, I mean, you know, speaking of Hitler, I mean, people are saying that Ron DeSantis is the new Hitler and, Donald Trump was the new Hitler back in the day. George W. Bush. I'm sure, you know, Barack Obama, I'm sure was even, oh, yeah, you're the new Hitler, but you have a different skin color, but you're still Hitler. It's just everybody's the new Hitler. He wasn't Hitler. He was the Antichrist, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. People saying that. Yeah, it was something like that. I mean, whatever label they could put on a leader that is yeah hitler you're the new hitler i mean nobody ever calls them the next stalin or the next Paul. it doesn't sound as cool i guess as when you call this someone is, the new hitler this is the next paul pot right here <laughs> you're like wait who's wait hold on a second wait, wait who's paul pot i've never seen a movie with paul pot what are you talking about everybody knows about movies with hitler yeah. everyone's seen that gif with that you know the 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 character the guys playing hitler is like yeah you know the gif where 
um, or the or not the GIF, oh, but like the downfall. The, yeah, downfall. That's right. Yeah, yeah, where they put the different subtitles, and it's just the, the, it's the most dumb stuff. Oh, my Snickers bar! It wasn't as good as last one. Arr! Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. So I don't know, but I I, I do think that uh, ha- having that knowledge of that, I think, is good, and it's uh, I don't know. I I, I just think that it's. It's really interesting, I, I think, and and kind of seeing how movies, entertainment in general, is is that end all be all for a lot of people. Like like you were saying before, where people went up to Arlie Ermy and be like, "You're the reason why I joined the military." I mean, that's kind of insane. Like, like you, hold on a second, he's the reason why you joined. But did you realize he got shot? He got shot and killed, right? Like a insane. Like, he, he spent the whole movie yelling at grunts saying like the most absurd ridiculous but if you're there terrifying things you know i won't want to be screamed at by a drill sergeant you know i just and so it yeah it's, it floors me that they would join because they wanted to be screamed at like that or is that the idea i don't know although uh, again uh, uh, you know to, to kind of be frank some of the things he said were pretty funny. Oh, so, uh, you, know, you know, I mean, yeah. come on. Like, again, that the first part of that movie is the, re- you know, that's the main thing that everyone remembers. Yeah. That first part or whatever. Um, so real quick, I want to go to, I want to kind of talk about a little bit of a, a, another war that we're going through. We're talking about Russia, Ukraine, and a little bit of the Taiwan, China thing, whatever. But there's another war that's going on because apparently it just seems it'll, it'll just it's never going to end. Like after you and I are dead, Patrick, it's still going to be happening. I'm sure they're still going to be talking about COVID. Oh yeah, right. So, and this isn't like uh, like I'm taking this from some random website. No, this is from the CDC themselves. They're doing this. So there's this little map here. I don't know if you can see that. This map. And so what this map is, is um, it's talking about deaths from COVID. And the time period is from January 1st, 2020. So it's not even like COVID probably hadn't even come over to America by then. It was still maybe a little, it was probably still in that lab in China for all we know. So if you see this, the highlighted is, so if it's green, it's, it's not as many deaths. And if it's this dark blue, it's more deaths now you would think because like some states like florida here for a for a while they probably locked down and did all that stuff and then ronda sanders was like oh whoops i screwed that one up let me backtrack on that and then a state like south dakota who was as far as i know was a was even better on all the lockdowns and vaccinations no not as many deaths but then california who was all gung-ho on the lockdowns and the, and the vaccines, eh, kind of a little bit, uh, you know, not, not as good there, it seems like. So it, it kind of shows you, again, that it's all over the place. And it, it, again, with the whole kind of black, it's not like, oh, all the states that were locked down central and vaccinations right now, there should be some kind of correlation, but you see, it's a lot more of a gray era. And you also see um, like some of the States where like Mississippi, for example, at total deaths per hundred K there's 422.9. I mean, that's a lot. 
it's quite a lot, but I'm sure it has something to do with the fact that Mississippi is one of, if not the most obese state in the United States. So I'm sure that's something to do with it. Um, so like, what, what are your thoughts on, on, on all this and how it, there's really doesn't seem to be any correlation to all this. If I, if I were to guess, you know, what the correlation might be, I would guess that it it's correlated with population density. Mm. Um, but then again, you know, Texas, yeah, there's a lot of people who live in Texas, but it's a, the largest, I mean, aside from Alaska, the largest state. And then you look at Alaska and it's not, the deaths were still pretty bad in Alaska, right? I mean, as opposed to North Dakota, which is light, light green, Alaska is a shade darker, mm-hmm. but it's the largest state by far. Um, by landmass, yeah. Yeah, but I suppose most of the people are living in the southern part, you know. Right, Anchorage and Juneau, yeah. Yeah. So, but you look at New York State, and that's pretty bad. But what if, go up once, because there's adjusted for, if you, in the toggles, you could adjust it for 100,000, rate per 100,000 age adjusted. So what does that mean? And that's even more of a crapshoot. Yeah. So, you know, again, with Mississippi, that's actually kind of I think the one I was supposed to be on. But yeah, it's still, it still brings my point across. But, you know, Mississippi is still that dark blue. And then Oklahoma, Kentucky, those are like the three worst, just kind of looking at it from the shades here. Um, but then California was like a, a slightly darker green color. And then South Dakota was a, a like a, a just a slight blue color, and then Florida seems to be kind of similar to California, where again, yeah, there. So all these different states who had all these different types of ways of combating this virus, and it really doesn't seem like, at least from what we're seeing, it doesn't really seem there's a whole lot that, because again, like I was saying before, there you should be seeing this set correlation of a state that locked down and had their population vaccinated there you should be seeing oh there was hardly any deaths but no it's almost as if like it doesn't even matter yeah yeah and i um i actually i litigated i did a contested hearing for one of my clients where my client didn't want his daughter to get the vaccine and the mom did and we were going through so the, the actual standard is not the court doesn't want to decide should the child get the vaccine or should the child not get the vaccine because the court is not equipped to make that decision. It doesn't have the resources and expertise that it needs. So what it does is it tries to pick the parent who is most suited to make the right decision. Huh. And I tried to show that my client was the right one to make the decision by showing that he had done all this research because he wasn't historically involved in the child's medical care. Hmm. Um, And ultimately we lost, but at the same time I was able to show with the Wisconsin's own data that the number of children who died from COVID or died even with COVID, I think was less than one in wisconsin during the whole pandemic so there was one or two maybe three children out of the entire state of wisconsin who had died from COVID. now based on that decision the american 
Academy of Pediatrics recommended that children as young as six months get injected with this vaccine that's been around for less than a year, you know, when all these trials had been, you know, like the, I don't know, all the other vaccines had been around and tested at least for a few decades, you know, um, and then, and then the doctor would sit there with the straight face and tell you, oh, we're highly, 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 highly recommending it for all children. You know, no matter of what, what their background is, what their health history is, it just makes no sense at all. And then you find out that like some companies were paying doctors to push the vaccine and had quotas for them hmm. to get X amount of vaccines pushed. Yeah. So. Jeez. Yeah, that's yeah. Once once you start dealing with uh, children, and like you're saying, like there's legit numbers to to prove that th- this shouldn't even be happening, yeah. but they decided to do it anyway. I mean, come on, it, it's stupid. Um, but um, so we'll we'll go ahead and end it there. Uh, Patrick, let everyone know where they can find your show and follow you on social media and anything else like to plug. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, man. I really appreciate being on again. It's good to talk to you and. Um vitaldescent.com is the website and i am the justin raimondo fellow at the libertarian institute we got a great crew of writers um and we got a great crew of our our fellows as well are excellent and all of the editors and staff harley and hunter are are just excellent and of course uh our fearless leader the great scott horton uh is at the helm he's the director of the institute there so check that out at uh, libertarianinstitute.org All right. Well, thanks again, Patrick, for being on. And for everyone watching and listening, thank you. And tune in next time where our guest will be the host of the Pete Quinonez show. Uh, The last I heard, it's Pete Quinonez, unless it's changed. I have no idea. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, I know. Um, So really looking forward to that. Uh, All right. We will see you in the next one. The, the the truck's backing up because they're hearing us. Uh, I think it's time to end this episode. And smash that like button. Yeah, smash that like Just button. Just break your computer. And don't forget to subscribe. Hit that subscribe button. Bye. Bye.